listening to the Miracle Word Podcast. We believe that the Word of God gives you the power to experience never-ending increase in every area. If you're ready for revelation that will take you to the next level, you're in the right place. Here's your host, evangelist, author, and founder of Miracle Word University, Ted Shuttlesworth, Jr. Uh, So we're going to jump in. So today I wanted to do... um, it is a it is a very transparent broadcast because uh, I'm talking about the preaching mistakes that I've made. I'll list three specifically this week, and you'll be able to see exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, yeah, it's kind of a homiletics class, Oscar. Hey, Renee. Um, and so I'm going to go through three of these um, and just kind of show you, especially when I was younger, mistakes that I've made while preaching. And you don't have to be a preacher to learn from these. This is actually going to tie in. Um, it's going to tie into your Bible study, to your own devotional time. It's going to tie into you growing um, in in the Word with the Holy Spirit guiding you, teaching you. But these will just be rules. Uh, Basically, these are three rules that I apparently broke (laughs) when I was preaching. Hey, Dave, I can't wait to see you. Caitlin, what's up? I don't, this is my father's studio, Robert. And so I apparently broke these rules when preaching. And um, these are three things you never want to break while you're studying the Bible or preaching from the Bible. And, and so thank God that I, I'm literally not making the mistakes I used to make when I was a really young preacher. Um, but hey, Reese, uh, being transparent today, bud. So I want to jump into these. I'll give you three. I'll tell you how I preached it wrong. I'll tell you all the mistakes I made on preaching like this and then uh, show you how it applies even to your Bible study. And when you're going deeper in the word, and then if you even ever have to speak, you won't make these same mistakes because you can just learn uh, from my own mistakes that I've corrected at this point. Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> Good morning, Ben Fole. So I want to start with you in uh, the book of Genesis, and we'll go to uh, Genesis chapter 18. And you may have heard me reference this story before on the broadcast, but I'm going to give you the whole thing right now. And if you haven't taken a minute to share the broadcast, do it. It helps us. Helps us get the word out. People can learn. Morning, Miss Terry. Raul Uchenawanunu is in the house, my friend. It was great to see you, by the way, in Illinois. And thank you for coming. Um, I'm in Genesis 18. This is going to be mistake number one that I've made while preaching. And uh, don't you make this mistake. (laughs) Because this first one, it's a very obvious one. And I shouldn't have made it very young preaching. And sometimes, you know, here's what happens, especially when you study the Bible uh, and you're, you're zealous, you're excited. And it's like, man, you find something, you find something in the scripture that stirs you up, man, gets you ready to run around the room, run around the church. You're ready to preach it. You're ready to tell other people about it. Um, ensure that it's right (laughs) before you do that. Ensure that it's right before you preach it before you share it with other people, before you get all excited and work it into your testimony somehow. Um, and if you, and you'll see how easy it would have been for me to do that if I had been a little bit more diligent. So I'm in Genesis chapter 18 and I was preaching. Thank God. I don't think that my whole message was on this, but I did take a significant portion of time in the message to deal with this. And so I, <laughs> I I preached it and I probably stayed on it for about 20 minutes or so, but which for most people, that's a whole message. But anyway, um, <laughs> for us, it's an appetizer. Anyway, Genesis 18, 
and then I'll give you the, I'll give you the rule. Uh, and, and you could say it as ensure that it's right, but, uh, let's look at it together. Um, I'm starting in verse one of Genesis 18, and this is what the Bible says. And the Lord appeared to him, meaning Abraham by the Oaks of Mamre. And he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, three men were standing in front of him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, Oh Lord, if I've found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves. And after that, you may pass on since you've come to your servant. So they said, do as you've said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent and Sarah said, quick, three sayas of fine flour, knead it, make cakes. Abraham ran to the herd, took a calf, tender and good, gave it to a young man, prepared it quickly. Then I'll go to verse nine. Then said to him, where's Sarah, your wife? They said to him. So I took this passage where um, Abraham looks up from his tent and he sees three figures coming towards his tent and he rushes out recognizing it's the Lord. And so he bows down and says, please stop by my tent. If I found favor in your sight, you know, stop by my tent. And so I took, I probably took 15 to 20 minutes <laughs> preaching and teaching. See this here is a picture of the Trinity in the old Testament. This is a picture of the Trinity. And I started preaching, you know who Abraham saw on that day? He saw the father, he saw the son, he saw the Holy Spirit and God was revealing himself in his trifold nature all the way back in the book of Genesis, that his threefold natures from Genesis to Revelation. And I'm preaching on how Abraham met with the Holy Ghost and Abraham met with the pre-incarnate Christ and Abraham met with God the Father and the Trinity came by his house. And I, I started going off on the, you know, you can see clearly the picture of the Trinity. Otherwise, why would Abraham have bowed down and called him Lord if it, you know, and I went through this whole thing. Um... <laughs> Spoiler alert, it's not the Trinity. <laughs> I'm not laughing because it's funny to, to not properly divide the word of God. I'm laughing because of how literally irresponsible I was to preach this out of this passage without studying it even further. It's not the Trinity, by the way. It's not the Trinity. Uh, ensure the thought that you're going to relay is correct from Scripture. So after the service, <clears throat> we're sitting there and we were, I think we were going somewhere and I, it was later that night, I believe, cause we were, we went out to eat and we were by the mall in Virginia beach. My dad and my mom were with me and, uh, they were in the service, my dad and mom. And, uh, we were leaving the mall area for after dinner. And my mom commented, she said, wasn't that wonderful message, um, um, wasn't that a wonderful message today? Wasn't that powerful? She said, wasn't that powerful what, what Teddy taught? Um, she said, wasn't that powerful what Teddy taught about the Trinity in the Old Testament? And <laughs> my dad said, not really. <laughs> I'm still laughing about it all these years later. Uh, <laughs> my dad, my mom said, wasn't that powerful what Teddy taught about the Trinity in the Old Testament? My dad said, not really. <laughs> See, my dad knew, obviously he, he, he had preached that passage probably hundreds of times. 
and uh, knew that that's not the Trinity uh, in the Old Testament. And so what could I have done to make sure I didn't make this mistake? You know, what could I have done <laughs> to ensure uh, that I didn't do this? And what can you do? What can you learn from this mistake of mine? Well, one, I heard a Bible teacher say uh, relatively recently that, you know, first of all, no, no verse of scripture, and I'm going to show you this soon in this broadcast, no verse of scripture should ever just be plucked out of its context, number one, or no short passages should be read in a way that is not uh, fluid with the rest of either the narrative or the teaching that the apostle is doing, if it's a teaching. This is a narrative, by the way. This is not a didactic teaching. This is Old Testament narrative, historical narrative. It's telling us what happened to Abraham, so it's like a story. But obviously, uh, I shouldn't have just plucked one small little section out of the narrative and tried to form a thought um, around what I thought was true. I should have read it through even further. So um, I heard one Bible teacher say that if you're studying scripture, and I think it's a good, maybe a good rule of thumb, it never hurts to read more of the Bible. You should read more of the Bible. So um, one Bible teacher said it this way. He said, let's say you're going to preach something or teach something from Genesis 18, which is where I was. He said, you shouldn't really do it without maybe reading Genesis 16, 17, 18, 19, and 20. So maybe read two chapters before the chapter you're preaching from and read two chapters after the chapter that you're preaching from. Which, what that does, because maybe you don't know this, maybe this is something that you've never been uh, told or taught, but obviously, I'm sure you know it inherently, that when the Bible was first given, there were no chapter divisions in the Bible, and there were no verse divisions in the Bible. So, as uh, we got the Bible continually transmitted and translated through the years, um, those that were translating and transmitting the scriptures realized at some point that for memorization and for preaching and for uh, different, you know, literally um, study practices, it would be easier if we had some chapter divisions, just like a book. And so chapter divisions were actually created first. Here, this is just kind of like a, tri a, a trivia moment. Chapter uh, divisions were created first, and then it wasn't till... Uh, Years later, that verses, verse divisions were created. I believe that was somewhere in the 1500s. Uh, maybe it came with the Stephanus uh, version of the New Testament, but um, verses didn't come later. So when this is being written uh, and recorded, and the Jews had, you know, Genesis, the Torah, the first or the Pentateuch, you know, for the first, you know, five books of the Bible, they they didn't have this broken down into chapters or verses. So they would have just continually been reading through it fluidly. Um, Juliana asks, what are the three sayas then? Because in verse 13, it says, the Lord said unto Abraham, I thought it was the triad. Yes. And that's what I thought. I'm going to help you to see it. The three sayas are three measurements of flour. It would be like saying, uh, pull out, you know, three cups of flour. You, you see what I mean? Why? There were three individuals there. The Bible says so, but they weren't the father, the son, and the Holy ghost. There were three individuals. So Abraham is entertaining three individuals in his tent. 
They're just not the father, the son, and the Holy ghost. I'll show you that in a moment. But when he, when they say, pull out three, say as a flower, that that'd be the same as saying, uh, pull out three cups of flour, just a different measurement. And so I'll show you in a moment. John Wallace said, I heard a guy one time preach about honest Thomas for solid 15 minutes. <laughs> so here, uh, the Bible teacher is saying it, it, to get a good reference of where you're at in this story, or even in the teaching, you know, you should read a good portion before and after where you're at. So if I would have just kind of read, and it probably would have been more than I needed, as I'll show you in a moment, but if I read chapter 16, 17, and then 18, where I'm preaching from, and then 19 and 20, it gives me a full picture, a more full picture, I should say, of the context of what I'm reading and teaching. So uh, if, if we go further, here's where I, if I would have just read further, look what I, look what I would have found. The Bible says, uh, after she, God promises Abraham that Sarah will have a child and everything, verse 14, look, is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I'll return to you about this time next year and Sarah will have a son. But Sarah denied it saying, no, I didn't laugh for she was afraid. And he said, no, you did laugh. Then now watch this, watch this right here. Verse 16, then the men set out from there and they looked down towards Sodom and Abraham went with them to set them on their way. And the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation um, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I've chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. Now look at this. Let me jump to um, 20 through 22. The Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave. I will go down to see whether they've done altogether according to the outcry that's come to me. And if not, I'll know. Now look at verse 22. So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. You see it? Here's the key that I missed that it would be easy to see if you just keep reading is look what it says. The Bible says the two men that were with the Lord kept on going towards Sodom, but the Lord and Abraham remained together. And this is where Abraham starts to barter with God. Well, Lord, what if there's this many righteous? Lord, what if there's this many righteous? Would you spare Sodom and for this many righteous? So the Lord stays with Abraham, but the two men. So who are the two men? Well, look at chapter 19 and verse one. If I'd have just kept one chapter after what I was teaching, Verse one, the two angels came to Sodom in the evening and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them, bowed himself with his face to the earth. Boom. There it is. There's the first mistake that I and so many others have made is that uh, they don't read into the full story so that they understand what's actually going on. So you can pl pluck little chunks out uh, of the Bible, but, and then you can basically what you could then do is insert your own thoughts into what scripture is teaching or narrating, right? That's, that's called the, the proper term for that. If you were taking a class called hermeneutics, which is a, the study of scriptures, all that is the proper term for what I did wrongly is eisegesis. 
That means that I am reading my own thoughts into the Bible. That's a, that's a, 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 that, that's a term I want you to learn. Eisegesis. And it's E-I-S at the beginning. Eisegesis. That's the exact opposite of exegesis. What that means is, is reading the scripture and letting the scripture tell you what it means. Letting the scripture speak for itself instead of you reading your own thoughts into the Bible. And so it's the difference between eisegesis, which is when I read my thoughts into the Bible, and then exegesis, when I let the Bible say what it already says and tell me what it's saying, right? So yes, don't read your own thoughts into the Bible. That's, that's a mistake that people do. Well, how could I have even gone further with this? Of course, I did it innocently. And I understand there's some people that do it with uh, motives that are not pure to either manipulate people or whatever it may be. But what else could I have, uh, what else could I have thought here? You know, what else? Well, somebody that really didn't know scripture. <laughs> you know, I could have said, um, you know, this is years later. I mean, this would be just like gross misinterpretation, but can you imagine if I said like, this is uh, God coming with the origin of his creation. So this, it, what you're really seeing here, this is God and Adam and Eve <laughs> appearing to Abraham. You know, imagine if I said that. This is God and Adam and Eve. No, it's not. It's spelled E-I-S. I believe it's E-I-S-E-G-E-S-I-S. E-I-S-E-G-E-S-I-S. If I'm wrong, it's not a spelling bee. But look it up on Google. But um, I could have, you could put anything in here. What about people that didn't understand the timeline of the Bible? You know, what if people that didn't understand the, t the, the timeline of the Bible, what if I could have said, uh, these are the two that never died and it's because they never will die and they were eternal beings just like Jesus. This, this here is Elijah and Enoch. What if I just made that up as people are making stuff up nowadays? The reason and I could, I could have, I could have made up this thought. What if I wanted to preach the thought that for, that somehow, uh, let's say that I wanted to go way overboard on teaching the book of Revelation. And even though the Bible doesn't tell us who it is, you're familiar with, maybe you're not, the two witnesses that will stand in the streets and preach during the tribulation period. The Bible calls them the two witnesses. Well, uh, they will be martyred and killed in the streets, but thank you, Daryl. There's eisegesis on Facebook. E-I-S-E-G-E-S-I-S. -E so what if I preached? You know, these, the two witnesses, and there are people that believe this and I'm not against them. They, they might believe Enoch and Elijah are the two witnesses because they never died in the Bible. God took them. So God took Elijah in the chariot of fire, took Enoch, just took him and he translated him into the eternal realm because he pleased the Lord. And what if I started saying that those are the two witnesses, but the reason they are is because these are uh, eternal beings, and they've been eternal since the beginning. Enoch and Elijah have existed like God and Jesus. What if I came back here to make that a proof text of that false doctrine? See here, Genesis 18, these two men, it doesn't say their names, but I'm telling you it's who it is. This is Enoch and Elijah appearing with God to Abraham. Now, you could sit there and say that all day long. There's no way to prove it from scripture. So this is called proof texting. 
That's basically on a lighter level what I did. Uh, while there's no way to prove those things, uh, you know, like who the two witnesses are, you can definitely prove who these two people were because the Bible tells us in 19.1, two angels. <laughs> so it's God and two angels. God and two angels. Um, Nancy said, who are the two witnesses? We don't know. There's people that have made t taken guesses at it. Maybe Enoch and Elijah. Maybe there's a lot of people that believe it's Moses and Elijah because those are the two that appeared on uh, the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus was up there with Peter, James, and John. And all of a sudden it grew bright and Moses and Elijah appeared. But it, it might make more sense to believe that it's Moses and Elijah because what do they represent for the Old Testament Jews? The law and the prophets. That's what everything was based on with the Jews, the law and the prophets. Who was that? Moses gave the law and Elijah represents the prophets, the law and the prophets. So it might make more sense that that's who the two witnesses are, but you can't prove it from scripture. And obviously that would be very wrong, just like it was here because of the fact, not enough study, not enough reading, didn't continue on through the passage to let the Bible interpret itself. Alex said, this is probably the worst I've heard. Someone told me that the reason that the Bible says Jesus is closed in white in Revelation is because the King James Version translators were white supremacists. I, I can't deal with the stupidity of people at this level. It, it's, uh, there are some people that are literally so stupid that I'm like surprised that they can put their pants on in the morning. Like, I'm honestly surprised that they can, they're not wearing Velcro running shoes, that they can actually tie shoes. How can you be that dumb and still walk around the earth? So Kayla is asking proof texting. What's the meaning again? So think of it this way, uh, Kayla. If, if I wanted to come up with, if I wanted to come up with uh my own idea and then find verses in the Bible to back my idea up. What am I looking? I'm looking for a text that will prove my idea. So I'm proof texting. So what am I doing? I'm coming up with that idea about Moses and Elijah. And then I'm trying to find scriptures that will literally uh, prove my thoughts in the text. That's wrong to do. Let the Bible uh, prove itself. Let the Bible prove itself. I agree, Steve Martin. I don't, I don't know why it would be Uchenna. I don't know why it would be Methuselah. In all honesty, it doesn't make sense to me. The other arguments that are more common seem to make more sense. Enoch and Elijah, Moses and Elijah. But the Bible doesn't tell us. So all you can really do is speculate. That's why it's not good to spend a lot of time trying to get dogmatic about those types of things. Just take the Bible for what it actually does say and then let God unfold prophecies that are more vague as time goes. In all honesty, if we believe the Bible, uh, you know, we won't even be here for the tribulation. So it doesn't matter to us in practicality. See what I mean? So the first... Um, Terry, one of the she said, "What kind of Bible should I get that also teaches or helps you to study?" We like the Life Application Study Bible. It has a lot of good notes in it. Uh, it'll help you. Um, yeah, and that was actually speaking of 
uh, Uchenna, that was actually speaking of the flood. Literally, uh, some say days after Methuselah died, the flood began. And so that he's saying his name was something like when he dies, the end will come. That was the meaning of his name. Yes, he was named that in prophecy. And literally some believe a few days after he died, like three, four days after he died, the flood began. And so that's, I, I would interpret it that way. Um, Nancy, no, it, it would not be God and Jesus. It, it will be people that can be killed in that way. Christ will not die again. He died on the cross. Uh, so it will not be God and Jesus as the two witnesses, but you can obviously see. So mistake number one is make sure you've got a full picture of what you're studying, what full picture of what you're looking at, read around that passage as much as you can and understand the context of what it is that you're reading. And don't, don't try to make, uh, suppositions. Don't read things into the Bible that aren't there. Uh, it will help you a lot to let the Bible speak for itself. Number two, the second thing that I want you to see, this is going to hurt for some people. It's definitely going to hurt. I know I crushed a lot of dreams when I talked about uh, Jeremiah 29, 11 the other day. I've, we've heard back on that multiple times, but uh, it has to be said. I found a funny, uh, somebody sent me a funny meme about Jeremiah 29, 11 after I did that. It's, I'll probably post it on Instagram today uh, so that you guys can see it too. It made me laugh. Um, <laughs> it said, uh, it, it was a meme with a video of, of President Trump underneath and it said at the top, it said, when your pastor tells you that Jeremiah 29, 11 is about Babylonian captivity, not about your desire to be a Christian movie star. <laughs> I'll have to post it today. It was great. Um, but I'm sorry if this next one hurts you or steps on some toes, but we're going to Philippians four because we're going to talk about mistake number two. And, uh, I know Nancy, Nancy, says, I still can't get over that Jeremiah 29, 11. I understand, but that's why I'm here to help. That's why I'm here to help people understand and, and learn how to properly interpret the scripture properly to study your Bible so that you don't make the same mistakes that I made. And number two, it might hurt a little bit because I might be stepping on people's favorite verses of scripture like I did with uh, Jeremiah 29, 11. It's not because I want to uh, make you lose your favorite quotation or your favorite confession. It's just, I want you to properly interpret the scripture so you don't you know, make mistakes or get to a place where you're like, oh man, I can't believe, I can't believe it. So now, that's right, David. That's right, David. You know where we're going. Get, get ready for Philippians 4. Uh, we're going to read it in context. So mistake number two. Don't take verses out of their context. Don't take verses out of their context. Put this in the comments, please. It's mistake number two. Don't take verses out of their context. Now, the first mistake was not that we took verses out of context. It's that we misinterpreted because we didn't read enough of the narrative to have all the information that was given to us. But then there's a second mistake here. Don't take verses out of their context. Well, 
again last week when I explained uh, Jeremiah 29, 11 to you guys, uh, because I know uh, I'll, I'll explain it again, Brittany, um, you know, in, in just a brief, in a brief few moments is that people read, you know, like to quote Jeremiah 29, 11 over their life for, I know the plans I have for you says the Lord, you know, plans, but when you read it, yeah, Chad Lang's bringing another one. He's just misquoting scripture like people do. Money is the root of all evil, which the Bible never says. It says the love of money is the root of all evil. But when I talked about Jeremiah 29, 11 last week, and I read it to you in full context, what did we understand? That it's not written to Christians. There were no Christians. There were no churches. The, the, the early church, the New Testament church, had not even begun yet. Jesus had not come. The blood was not shed. This was an Old Testament context. Who? So one of the things that I, um, I encouraged you to do when you're looking at something like that is first, who wrote it? Always ask yourself these three questions. Who wrote it? Question two, to whom did they write it? Question three, why did they write it? Right? Those are the three questions that will help you when you are uh, interpreting scripture. Who wrote it? To whom did they write it? And why did they write it? So obviously we, we answered those qu three questions with Jeremiah 29, 11. Well, the prophet Jeremiah wrote it by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But then the, the next question is very important. To whom did he write it? He wrote it to Jewish captives, to th those that were in Babylonian captivity. The ones that thought maybe they would never get out and encourages them by the spirit of God. Uh, you'll be there for 70 years and then I will come and take you out. You'll build your homes and you'll live. You'll prosper because I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, right? So when you read it in context, Jeremiah wrote it to Jews who were in exile. They were in captivity. And why did he write it? For the purpose of encouraging them with prophecy that they wouldn't be there forever, that 70 years only, and then they would come out and God would bless them. God would bless them. And then God would uh, show them by his own manifestations of his power that he has plans for them that are for good, not for their destruction, not to destroy them, to help them. So I showed you that last week, how you've got to say who wrote it, to whom did they write it, and why did they write it? There's my friend, Pastor Alan Didio. Love you, man. He said, this is really messing up my summer sermon series. <laughs> you know what? You know what you could do, Pastor Allen, is just do an at the movies. You could just do the whole summer, do an at the movies series and talk about Home Alone and uh, The Matrix. Um, so... We'll deal with Uchenna's question in a moment. Actually, before I jump into Philippians, let's just deal with it. Uh, he said, I've ministered on Ephesians 2 and Philippians 2, that after we received our gift of Christ's sacrifice to be saved by grace through faith, but that Philippians 2.12 shows we have to work out that salvation. So let's pop back one page. 2.12, the Bible says, Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but so much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Scroll back up for me, Draven. So I'm preaching out of context, say by works, I'm preaching, you know, stay holy and lips and free. You know, for me, uh, Uchenna, I would use 
on top of Ephesians 2, I would use 1 Corinthians 9.27 because Paul makes a very plain statement uh, to the Corinthian church. He said, I have to keep my body under on a daily basis so that after having preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. One translation says become a, a, a castaway. One says a reprobate. One says disqualified. He's speaking of disqualification of uh, his eternal goal of making it to heaven. What does the Bible say? He doesn't run uh, or he's not shadow boxing. He's not uh, boxing the air. He's not just running to run. He said, we run that we may obtain press toward the mark, the high calling that's in Christ Jesus. So he said, if I don't control myself by the Holy Spirit, then at the end of having preached to everybody else, I myself will become a, a, a castaway or disqualified. So I think that would be a better place to more clearly preach that thought. Paul was already saved. Paul was already saved, but he was teaching the Corinthians, even though you're saved, you've got to control your flesh nature. You've got to make sure that you are doing what's pleasing unto God so that at the end of your life, you're not disqualified. See what I mean? So I would use that, maybe even talk about John 15, because there are no Jews or Christians that were born into the vine of Christ. You come into the vine of Christ through faith. And in John 15, he says that those that were in me already that aren't producing fruit, the husbandman, my father, will cut them off and throw them into a pile to be burned. Well, you can't argue that that's the Jews because the, there's no Jews that are automatically connected to Christ the vine. You have to connect to Christ by grace through faith. So to me, though Christ had not died yet, it's a picture of those who were once in covenant with him and are cut off because they didn't produce fruit that was pleasing unto God. Great question. Alan said, I guess I'll just continue my series on why Jesus would social distance and double mask according to Romans 13. It's a wonderful passage. <laughs> we call it Hitler's favorite scripture. Um, we're in Philippians 4 now. So let me give you this number two. I'm sorry if this gets on. I'm not actually, but you know, I don't want you to be like, oh, was, that, was my, that was my scripture. Let's talk about it. We're going to read Philippians 4 verses 10 through 20. Are you ready? Listen to this now. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you've received, you've revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. It's talking about opportunity to give to him, to Paul. He said, you, you were concerned about me, but you didn't have any opportunity to give to me. Okay. Verse 11, not that I'm speaking of being in need for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. And I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can now hold on now. Hold on. Everybody hold on to your seats. Hold on to your seats. It's verse 13. I can do all things through him that strengthens me. Get ready. I can do all things through him that strengthens me. Was this Paul saying that I can do anything in the world? <laughs> Was this saying, you know what? If you want to be in the NBA, you can do all things through Christ that strengthens you. <laughs> Is that what Paul's teaching here? Is Paul teaching that? 
You want to be a, you want to be a multimillionaire of a, of, a, of a corporation? Just start confessing it. You can do all things through Christ who strengthens. Is that what Paul's teaching? Is that what Paul's teaching here in Philippians 4? Let's read it in context. First of all, who wrote it? Paul. To whom did he write it? The Philippian church. And why did he write it? Well, in this passage, he's actually talking about God's provision. And he's saying to them, as that's why I started in that part. He said, you've had concern for me, financial concern, because they've watched Paul. And Paul, uh, they knew Paul was traveling nonstop. The Paul's being persecuted nonstop. All the stuff. And you remember this. This is, this is the first century. So there's no CVS on the corner. There's no Walmart. There's no target for Paul to go to. to you know, you can't, if, if Paul runs out, you know, if his shoes wear out on the bottom, he can't just stop at Walmart and get, a, you know, a pair on rollback for $8.88. You realize there's no Amazon.com. You know, we, many times we, we interpret these scriptures through like modern day technology and convenience. They didn't have any of that. So what, what if Paul, what if Paul's like walking and doing all that he's doing and riding and, you know, taking ships and, you know, what if his sandals wear out or his sandal breaks or whatever, you know, he can't go to Walmart and buy a new one. Uh, what if he goes through, what if he's on a long journey and on the journey to the, on the, on the journey to which he, he's, he's going somewhere, as he says here. Uh, what if he gets to a place where there's, you know, there's not food for a stretch. You can't stop at a McDonald's off exit 118. Say, you know what? I've been on the interstate for a while, headed over here to Galatia, but I'm getting hungry. I'd like a McDouble. You can't swing off the interstate and grab yourself a, a, a value meal. <laughs> Remember, Paul's taking journeys. Paul's going. And they would supply him. I mean, you go look at Acts 28. What did the people do on the island of Malta after he ministered to everybody and healed the sick and had miracles? You know what they did? They abundantly supplied him for his journey because that's how it had to be back then. You had to get abundantly supplied. You had to take your supplies with you. What you had is what you had, unless you came through another town or city and then you could restock your supplies. But remember, Paul's saying this, and he's willing to do this for the cause of Christ. Look what he said. I'm not speaking of being in need. I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ that strengthens me. So Paul's teaching here that as he's doing what God's called him to do, and he's facing these trials, things that would mo make most people quit. Well, I'm not going to go serve God like that. You know, there's, there's times where it's cold. There's times where, you know, the, the journeys are, are harder. There's times where, you know, we went through a whole stretch where we, we didn't eat breakfast or lunch. We just had dinner at the end of the night and I was hungry all day, you know, and Paul's saying, you know what? I'm willing to do those things. I'm willing to face any of that. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now look, verse 14, let's keep going. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And um, let's go further than that. Verse 15, as you Philippians you yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, now listen to this, no church, this is why it's important to understand these passages, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. So stop right there. Hold on. Of all the churches Paul was ministering to, starting, strengthening, he said, when I started in the gospel and left Macedonia, no churches 
zero goose egg. No churches entered into partnership with me in the area of giving and receiving. That's what he's saying. Except you only. You're the Philippian church. You're the only church that partnered with me. The only one. How huge is this? Because it's, it's listen to me now, it's setting up the next part that we always quote over everybody. I'm hitting two of your favorite scriptures in one point. Look at this. No church partnered with me except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I've received full payment and more. I'm well supplied. Having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Now look at verse 19. Look at verse 19. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. And then, of course, verse 20, to God our Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Hold on. Verse 19 is another favorite verse of everybody. And my God shall supply all your needs according to your riches and glory in Christ Jesus. And people misquote it. And what do they say? And my God shall supply all my needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Bible doesn't say that. Paul's not confessing that over himself, is he? He doesn't say, and my God will supply all my needs. No, he's writing to the Philippians. Who are they? The only church that has partnered with him financially. The only one. Only one of all the churches. The Ephesians didn't do it. The Galatians didn't do it. The Thessalonians didn't do it. You think about it. The Colossians didn't do it. The Philippians were the only church that did it. And so what's he saying? He's saying something specific to them. What's he saying? Because of the fact that you took care of me and you were the only church that did, because you partnered with me and you were the only church that did, he's saying based upon your financial sowing, my God will supply all of your needs. He's telling that to them. My God will supply all of your needs according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. But why can he say that to them? The reason he can say it to them is because they're the only church that sowed financial seeds. And because they sowed financial seeds, they're willing to be richly supplied by Christ Jesus, by his riches in glory. Not, notice this. He didn't say this over every church. That's why you can't turn to Ephesians and read this exact same verse. If this exact same verse isn't in Galatians, it's not in Colossians. It's right here in Philippians because it's a letter to that church. And they're the only one that provided for him. So in context, let me ask you the question. If we're keeping the scripture in context, is this, first of all, does it say, my God shall supply all my needs? No. He's not speaking of himself. My God shall supply all your needs. But what was the catalyst of his phrase, of that phrase? All that talk about how much they cared about his ministry, how much they sowed to his ministry, not once, but yet again. You supplied me when I was with you. Then when I was in Thessalonica, you sent out a gift. Then you sent more gifts. So these were sowing people. They just were sowing and sowing and sowing and sowing, taking care of Paul and his ministry. But once you know, now here's the proper thing. Once you know 
who wrote it, to whom they wrote it, and why they wrote it, then you get to the place, how can this apply to me? Because remember, although you are part of the church, Philippians, some of the things were written in an immediate context directly to their church. For example, did you, any of you that are watching or listening, did you sow any money to Paul's ministry when he was traveling to Thessalonica? No, absolutely you didn't. So that part, that's not written to you specifically. It was written to the members of the Philippian church who actually did give to Paul. But then we take out of this the principle. Paul wrote it. Paul wrote it to the Philippians because of the fact they blessed him. And now he's saying God would bless them. But now take out of that and ask yourself, what does this mean to me? Well, first of all, when you're looking at what does this mean to me, is what's being said here being said to Christians? That's the first question. Well, the answer is yes. The answer is yes. It is being said to Christians in a New, Te New Testament context. Okay, so then most likely it's going to apply to you and me because we're still in the New Testament church, right? So then we say to ourselves, well, how can we apply this principle? How would it apply to me? Well, if God's willing to bless the Philippians for their selfless giving to the kingdom and supplying the ministries of the church, then would not God do the same thing for those of us who give? to the ministries of the church and the New Testament church at large? Well, of course he would. And in fact, in other places in the New Testament, we can see like the gospels, Luke 6, 38. We know that verse of scripture, give and it shall be given unto you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. Will he, uh, will he cause men to give into your bosom? Second Corinthians nine, as he's taking the offering in, uh, in Corinth, what does he say there? That God gives seed to the sower and he gives bread to the eater. And then as you sow, what happens? You begin to abound to every good work. So we know the principle is there. So when he's quoting this, my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus, that is people who are willing to sow and have sown into the kingdom of God by faith. Yes, God will bless those people. He promised he would. Nancy says, can a ministry declare this to the people sowing into their ministry? Absolutely. I declare that to the people that are, are standing with us in obedience to God's word, that God will not only supply all your needs, but we're believing that God, as Christ did through his whole ministry, will take you into the overflow so that you'll always, as he said to the Corinthians, abound in every good work. You'll abound. You'll have more than enough, more than enough. And so it's important to see if we, if we shifted this back to the Jeremiah passage that we covered, Jeremiah 29, 11, after we answer the questions, who wrote it? Jeremiah did. To whom did he write it? The exiles, the Jewish captives. And why did he write it? To encourage them in the fact they wouldn't be in captivity forever. God, he said, I know the plans I have for you. I'm going to bring you out of that problem and I'm going to bless you and I'm going to bless your families. And so once we figure that, then we ask ourselves, well, was this written to a New Testament uh, congregation? No, it wasn't. It's written to Jews in the Old Testament. It's prophecy for those Jews specifically. But we ask ourselves this, what principle could we take from Jeremiah 20 11, 29, 11? Well, even though the Jews had failed, though they were in captivity, did God still love them? Yes. 
Okay, so we could take that principle because it tells us something about God's nature. He's merciful and he's loving. If you've ever made a mistake, if you've ever repented of your sin, if you've ever asked him for forgiveness, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Well, why? One of the things we can take from the passage in Jeremiah 29 is that God's merciful and benevolent. It's part of his character, Matthew 7. He's a good and loving heavenly father. He's merciful. He's benevolent. Could we carry that over and say, well, now we're under a better covenant that's established upon better promises? Yes, we are. If God was willing to do that for his chosen people in the Old Testament, under an old and a worse covenant, to forgive them and then bless them again, would he not do more for his people in a new covenant context? I believe, of course, he would. Because we've got a better covenant that's established upon better promises. Through the blood of Jesus, the remission of sin, we are now new creatures in Christ Jesus, something those Old Testament Jews never were. Now, we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ, something those Jews did not have. You see what I mean? So I would not quote Jeremiah 29, 11 over my life because it's not written to me and it's a prophecy for those in captivity, but I can take those principles and say, hey, if God was that good to them under an old covenant, how good will he be to me under a new covenant? And plus, there's plenty of places in the New Testament that you can quote over your life and understand the nature of God, the goodness of God. You see what I mean? So you just have to make sure you don't make mistake number two. Don't take scripture out of context. And then number three, let me finish with this one. Um, the third mistake is taking at face value things we've traditionally heard. Taking at face value things we've traditionally heard or traditional preaching, traditional teaching, traditional thoughts. I'm going to give you an example of that now in a sec. Put that in the comments. Mistake number three. Taking at face value things we've traditionally heard, traditionally been taught. Okay, I'll give you an example. Type in the comments section, when Jesus was at crucifixion, how many stripes did Christ take upon his back? I want somebody to, as many people as can answer that in the, uh, in the comments. How many stripes did Christ take upon his back? Waiting to see anybody that knows the answer to that. Juliana says 40 stripes. Anybody else? Lena says 39 stripes. Dave Condon, 39 stripes. Brandon knows 39 stripes. Liz, 39 stripes. I think what Juliana was saying was 40 minus 1. Thir because that was the, the phrase, 40 minus 1. 39 stripes. 39 stripes. 39 stripes. Okay, now somebody give me the, the, the reference in the scripture where it says Jesus took 39 stripes upon his back. Give me, give me the scripture reference that says Christ took 39 lashes or stripes upon his back. Do you know there's whole books that have been written around this? Do you know there was a doctor that once claimed that all sicknesses and all diseases 
could be categorized in 39 categories and that each stripe that Christ took represented one of those categories. You know that? And so the whole book was based upon the fact that Christ took 39 stripes. Now, in the Old Testament, it's interesting because Paul, um, Paul mentioned that he took, Paul mentioned that he took 39 stripes multiple times. That's Paul, but we're talking about Jesus. Paul said, um, five times I've received from the Jews 40 lashes minus one. That was Paul, but that's not Jesus. Let's, uh, let's pray for Miss Lowenda real quick. She said, please pray. I'm in the ER, passed out this morning. Father, the Victory Tribe, we join our faith together. We pray for Miss Lowenda right now. Whatever this is that's tried to take her out, we rebuke it in Jesus' name. Heal her body. Touch her now. Healing virtue flow through her body. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, go with me to John chapter 19. The Bible says in John 19, 1, then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. That's all it says. Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. Let's go to Matthew. Matthew chapter 27 and verse 26. Then he released for them Barabbas and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. So you see that? There's two passages that um, tell us about Jesus whipping, but it doesn't tell us how many times he was whipped. Now, we do know that it was the practice of the Jews to whip someone 40 times minus one. And the reason they would do minus one, 40 lashes minus one, is because if you went over that, even accidentally because you miscounted, then you would get the lashes. But remember, it was not the Jews who whipped Jesus. It was the Romans who whipped Jesus. It's important to remember that. It's not the Jews that whipped Jesus. It's the Romans. That is, that is correct, Lena. Deuteronomy 25.3. But it's talking about what the Jews would do. Remember, Deuteronomy, to whom is it written? It's written to the Jews. That was the Jewish custom. But see, the Romans, the Romans had control of Christ in the crucifixion, not the Jews. The Romans had control of Christ. The Romans crucified him. The Romans beat him. The Romans nailed him. The Romans pierced his side. It was the Romans, uh, it was the Romans um, that were, were going to be the ones that would have broken his legs if he had not already died and given up the ghost. So notice it was the Romans carrying out the crucifixion process, not the Jews. So we don't really have any 
proof in scripture. I'm only using this as a point because for so long, it's an interesting thought, Rick Renner Hedjo, that the 40th stripe was usually fatal. But think about this now. Hey, Faith. Though it was the Romans who beat him, the Bible doesn't actually tell us how many stripes Jesus took. The, the danger here is like what I said, is when you've got whole books based on his 39 stripes and the whole premise of the book is based on something the Bible never said. Many times, um, many times throughout church history, we have heard things that have been preached to us multiple times. We've almost just taken them at face value because we've never really looked at them. We've never really looked into them for ourselves. But see, this is the power of, you know, studying the word of God for yourself because you're supposed to be able to be a workman that doesn't need to be ashamed, able to rightly divide the word of truth. Of course, that was written to Timothy, who's a pastor. But every believer, I believe every believer should be so proficient in the word of God that they're able, as Peter commands to the church in Asia Minor, 1 Peter, the churches in Asia Minor, 1 Peter 3.15, that we should be ready to give an answer at any given moment for the hope that lies within us. So if somebody comes and says, why do you believe in this? And what do you believe about this in the Bible? And what do you believe about that? You should be able to open your Bible up and say, well, the reason we believe this, the reason I believe Jesus is a healer is, bam, the reason I believe God will provide for his children is, bam. The reason I believe in speaking in tongues and the baptism of the Holy Ghost as a secondary or subsequent experience to salvation is, bam. And you should be able to open up the word of God and be able to give an answer to those that have questions. How can we be successful and fruitful witnesses for Christ without knowing his word? See, that's the real question. How can we be successful witnesses for Christ? And see, just, just the, the things that I've taught you today, just these three, three things will help you uh, in knowing that when you're doing your own study, when you're filling yourself with the word, see, because it takes this. One of the things, and I'm, I'm going to rant for just a couple of minutes before I pray, because I feel like ranting, but because it, it comes up in my spirit. One of the things that is a plague, it's a plague in the charismatic and Pentecostal body of Christ today is, uh, and I, Draven, I don't know if you can hear me, but you might, you might want to plug that bad boy in. Cause I just saw a low battery pop up. Um, but one of the things that is a plague uh, in the Pentecostal and charismatic movement today is in, in, all, in all honesty, you've got a lot of people that are just looking for manifestations and they've got no word content in them. No word content whatsoever. It blows my mind. It blows my mind. You got these churches and I want, listen to me, I want moves of the Holy Ghost. We press for a move of the Holy Ghost. We press for the manifestations of the Spirit of God. We want... You know, we've been having people baptized in the Holy Ghost in the last few weeks. We've been having people come to the altar and be saved. We've been having people report healings. We had a, a woman instantly healed a couple of nights ago, came in crippled. I didn't even give you this testimony. She came in crippled 
And when she came into the service, couldn't lift her arm above right there. She couldn't lift her arm above right here. She came in like this. And of course, this arm was functional. This arm would not move above right there. Power of God hit her in the service. She came up to the pastor at the end. She said, when I came in, I, I was crippled with my arm, couldn't move past there. She said, look at it now. And she's doing just like this. Power of God hit her. I'm not, you, you should know if you're on this broadcast that I'm not against the move of the Holy Ghost. I'm, I'm pressing for it. But what I can't stomach is people that are so wanting some weird sign. Here's the other thing. Why? I made fun of this the other day, last week. Why are we seeking signs that aren't even in the Bible? Why do people get more excited about signs that aren't even in the scripture as, than they do for ones that are in the scripture? Let me just say something to you. You should be more excited when somebody gets saved than you are if somebody says or purports that they saw gold dust. You ought to be more excited, and I mean far more excited, when somebody gets filled with the Holy Ghost and speaks in tongues than if somebody says, I smelled the rose of Sharon in the service tonight. I think I saw angels in the service tonight. I, you know, in the service tonight, I felt oil start to form on my hands. Okay, great. Meanwhile, seven people just got filled with the Holy Ghost and they're speaking in tongues at the altar, which is a real sign of the Holy Ghost. Meanwhile, the Spirit of God is calling people to salvation and they're coming to the altar and repenting of their sin and becoming new creations in Christ Jesus and somebody over here is all excited because they smelled the lily of the valley. Meanwhile, the old lady next to you put on too much body spray. It's like, it's ridiculous. And you've got charismatic Pentecostals that are more interested in some weird sign or some weird thing that's, you know, not even in the scripture. What, what, what do I care? See, because the question is, when God moves, why did he move? Why did he move? Right, all of heaven rejoices, but we give a golf clap. How many, how many are thankful for those that have become brothers and sisters? Amen. Let me tell you, it shows what the average, what the current church, the modern day church thinks about salvation. It shows us that many pastors are punks because they've not even trained their people to value salvation. You know how I know? You can have people come to the altar and this happens all the time, all the time. People coming to the altar to be saved and then there's people in the pew that take it as that's my cue to get out of here. Service is basically over. They pack up their little stupid pocketbook and put it on their shoulder because they got to get out and check the roast at home. Have faith for a smart oven and control it from your phone. And they literally put pack their stuff up, put their little hat on and shuffle out into the parking lot so they can get it like it's like it's a theme park and they need to get out of the parking lot before the, the rush in the parking lot. That shows you what people in the modern day church think of salvation. They don't give a crap. And the reason they don't give a crap is because their pastors don't give a crap. That's exactly why they don't care. Because if they were trained by their leadership to value salvation, they would stand there reverently and pray and thank God that people are giving their hearts to Jesus instead of goofing off, running for the parking lot because they're so freaking fleshly led that they can't go two hours without a hamburger. And that's exactly what's going on in our churches today. I've rebuked people for just starting to walk out while people are being saved. What arrogance. What stupidity on the part of these carnal Christians. 
carnal Christians. They're stupid. They don't give a crap about salvation. They're punching their little time clock to come into the church. Well, I, I went to church on Sunday. Yeah, but you don't care. The whole reason we're there is not only to be built up to see people come to Jesus. People are coming to Jesus and the Holy Spirit's pulling people. People are running for the parking lot like retards. I say that in the truest sense of the word. They're slow. They are slow. They're spiritually retarded. And I mean that. I actually mean that with all my heart. Spiritually retarded. That's why, that's why you got churches that aren't growing. Nothing's happening. Because people don't value salvation because the pastor doesn't value salvations. Doesn't value baptisms in the Holy Ghost or they'd have them. Doesn't value these things. People get healed and nobody cares. Nobody cares. People are more interested in a personality, a celebrity. People are more interested in stuff that's carnal. Blows my mind. People are, 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 are going to hell in droves and you start having people saved in church. People are like, this is my time to you know, get out to the parking lot before it gets too busy. You wonder why churches aren't growing. Many churches. The ones I go to are growing. Because I'm not going to waste time with churches that don't get, don't, they don't care about souls. They don't care. And if I find out, if I come to a place for the first time and find out that that's what they are, you won't see me back again. You won't see me back again. And the, the, the blight on the charismatic Pentecostal church in 2021 is that they're seeking all this. It's one of two things. They're either super spiritual and they're seeking all this nutty stuff and they have no word content in their spirit or they're so dry and have pulled back from the move of the Holy Ghost and gotten seeker sensitive that they don't even bother attempting to see people. They won't even give altar calls because they're afraid that that will be offensive to people or make people feel uncomfortable. It should. That's the point. They won't lay hands on the sick. They won't lay hands to see people baptized in the Holy Ghost because they don't care. They just don't care. They've dried up and died on the vine. The Bible says in the last days, you'll see people who have a form of godliness, but they'll deny his power. When you find them, turn away from them, the Bible says. Turn away from them. And that's, that's exactly where we're at. People are either dead on the vine or they've gotten so nutty that they have no Bible in their spirit. How hard is it? Let me ask you a question. How hard is it as a leader to just get a few verses into your spirit? You've got an entire week. You've got a week. How hard is it to sit down with your Bible and get some verses of scripture into your spirit? How hard is that? If you can't remember them, write them down on your notes or maybe open your Bible. Here, here, let me just give you a tip. And I'm by no means some old seasoned minister, not even 40 yet, but I've preached enough to know here's an easy tip for anybody that may take a stage and hold a microphone. Start with the word of God. Most people that I've heard aren't even interesting enough to have anything interesting to say. We're dropping viewers like flies. <laughs> dropping viewers like flies. I don't care. 
could care less. Most people aren't even interesting enough to just ramble out of the top of their head. Most people aren't even put together enough to do that. Most people don't even have the intellect to just jump up from scratch and say something that's coherent and interesting. Most people don't. I'm being completely honest with you right now, and you should know as well as I do that the biggest fear in the world is uh, public speaking. In a recent poll, they've said that people are more afraid of public speaking than they are of death, which means that at a funeral, they would rather be in the casket than the one giving the eulogy. Most people do not have enough off the top of their head and aren't interesting enough to get up and, and hold the attention of a body of people. Have something in your spirit. Prepare your heart. Have some scripture in your heart. Don't get up and say, well, how many, you know, it's a good day and you know, how many just the devil really fought you to get here today? How many times, throw a hand up in the comments or two hands if you've, if you've ever heard this kind of crap in church. And this is like how people start because they don't know how to transition in. It's like, well, you know, how many know it's a good day? And, you know, how many just the devil fought you today, you know, trying to get to the house of God? How many, you know, the devil really fought you? You know, you're trying, you wanted to just be here, but just feel like everything this week was trying to come again. How many... Great job, genius. Keep bringing more attention to what you feel like the devil's doing in the earth. Because that's why we all gathered together in church today to hear you ramble on about what you think the devil tried to do this week against you or against us to keep us from driving 10 minutes to come to church. Good job, genius. Focus on the right stuff. Unbelievable. How many know, you know, it's a good day, but how many are just happy we don't have to do life alone and we're just, you know, it's just wonderful. And, you know, it's like, have a thought in your head. Stand to the pulpit with power in your spirit. Pray in the Holy Ghost before church starts. Have some verses of scripture in your spirit and launch from there. You know, rather than getting up and doing all that stupidity about how we know it's hard, you know, many times our lives are hard. You know, stuff's going to be thrown at us. Stuff's going to be thrown. How about start with a verse of scripture that has victory in it and start the day from there. Why not get up and say, how many are thankful that Paul the Apostle wrote in 1 Corinthians 15 and 57, thanks be unto God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. Okay, there's your thought. Now go off of that. There's your start. There's your transition. Let's lift our hands and thank the Lord that the Bible says that but thanks be unto God who's, who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. Aren't you happy today that you're a victorious church? Aren't you happy that you're not fighting for the victory, but you're fighting from the victory? That you don't have to win victory over the devil? Aren't you glad that Christ 2,000 years ago already won victory over the devil when he said it is finished on the cross of Calvary and he led captivity captive, made a show of them openly, took back the keys of death, hell, and the grave ascended into heaven, sent down the Holy Ghost on the day of Pentecost, who now dwells in every believer. How many are thankful that the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in you and quickens your physical body? I mean, why not start there? Instead of, how many know, you know, as we just uh, come to church many times, there'll be things that'll just, uh, they'll just, uh, really come against us, amen, and just, we just have to be, you know, we gotta, we gotta really put our blinders on, amen. It's like, what are you even talking about? 
What are, that's why people raise up churches full of defeated people. It's because the leadership talks defeat all the time. The leadership, that's how, that's how it happens. It trickles down from weak, dead leadership. I'm encouraging any of you. If you stand in a pulpit, get, get some, and, and somebody said, what's the best victory first? Why not start there? Start in 1 Corinthians 15, 57. Start with some kind of a declaration or a promise of New Testament, what God's already done. You know, how many thankful, how many know the Bible says that we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ Jesus? Aren't you thankful that we're not waiting on Christ to bless us, but that Christ already blessed us? Aren't you thankful that when we were dead in our trespasses and in our sins, that he raised us up together with Christ and made us sit in heavenly places with Christ Jesus? Aren't you thankful that we are not down here on the earth like victory, like victims, but we're in victory seated on the throne with Christ Jesus? You see what I mean? And so it blows my mind. Have something in your spirit. Have word. Why do you think I do all of these broadcasts uh, on studying the scripture? Having scripture in your spirit. Rightly dividing scripture. It's because we got a generation of Pentecostals that don't even know what they believe. Let alone are able to stand up and from their heart, from their spirit, pull scripture out and deliver it to the people of God. See, and I believe that it's not just ministers that need this, but every Christian needs to have the ability to rightly divide the word of God, to be able to speak with power the word of God in the right way, knowing what it says, proper context, everything in its place, but deliver the power of the word of God. Amen. So I want to pray for you today because I know that the people that are watching me are Pentecostal charismatic people. There's probably not any reformed Baptists or reformed Presbyterians watching this broadcast daily. I doubt very seriously if there are people from the Southern Baptist convention that are joining in on the broadcast. If there are, we welcome you. God bless you. You were, you were ordained to be here before the foundations of the world predestined to be in this place today and hear it. But understand what I'm saying to you. Um, for those of us that are Pentecostal charismatics, we've got to have the word of God. Why do you think we, uh, why do you think that we, uh, started the year going through the Bible in 90 days because we wanted to read through scripture fully in the first quarter of this year, because we're going to run in 2021. Amen. We're going to run in 2021. And part of that, you can't run fully without the word of God. You need the word to be your strength as you run. Hallelujah. So I want to pray for those of you that are watching today and believe God that a hunger like you've never seen would come into your spirit to study the word of God, to go deep in the scripture. Look at that. Johanna, Johanna says, I am Baptist, but I love Pentecostal. Love you all. We love you too. Thank you for being here. <laughs> so we do have Baptists. But I want to pray because I'm believing God that this word will get so deep in your spirit. I'm telling you, I, I've always loved the scripture, but I've had a new hunger come on me in 2021 for the scripture. It's new. I mean, I've always loved reading the Bible, studying. You can ask my youth pastor. He'll, he'll be here this week. You can ask him. Back when I was in youth group, I was a note-taking machine. 
I've always loved to take notes and to read and to study, but something has hit me in 2021 that I'm praying comes on you, a hunger for the mighty word of God. Bow your head. Father, I pray for every person watching or listening. I ask you, Lord, that you would put this same strong hunger into their hearts, into their spirits to study deeply your mighty word. I pray, Lord, that you would put that, uh, that pressing into every one of us to be voracious readers of your word. Let that hunger never die down. I pray in Jesus' name that as this year goes by, we'll see more in the scripture than we've ever seen. Open the eyes of our understanding. Let them be enlightened that we may know the hope of your glorious calling. Give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation in Jesus' mighty name. And then put a new fire on every one of us to do what we're called to do. And we thank you for it. We give you praise and glory for what you're going to do this week, even at camp meeting. In Jesus' mighty name. Everybody say amen. I'll give you an opportunity to sow seed today. And you need to sow seed. It's important, as I said earlier, to stand. It's like I was teaching from Philippians today. The only ones who are in line that would God would supply all their needs and take them into the overflow is those, read the context, that were sowing. And sowing puts us in position to receive increase in every area of life. One of the things that I want to see is harvests every day. So one of the things we've been starting to do, we sow almost literally every day. We don't wait for Sunday. We're sowing all the time, all the time. Thank you, Capri. And so you can do it on uh, hashtag donate on Facebook or Twitter. Of course, Cash App's available. Of course, uh, Zelle and Venmo are available. MiracleWord.com is where all of the information's at. And uh, of course, PayPal's available too. I wanted to say that if you're really enjoying these broadcasts that we're doing on, uh, on, the, on Bible study and, and things like that, we're going to give you more tools here shortly. But um, of course, now that the blog is up, I have a, a, an article that I released in the blog that is uh, tips on how to uh, do better Bible study, better devotional study. And I give you four practical tips in the blog that will help you uh, complete your Bible study and go through the way that you plan to do and not miss out. So check it out. It's on the blog if you go uh, and, ch and check everything out. It's all right there. You can check it on your phone, tablet, laptop, whatever. But one of the things we're doing, and this is why I want to encourage you today, I've, I've literally felt so strongly about what I'm teaching you today, getting it into people, that we're putting together, as I said before, what we're now calling the Elite Study Collection. The Elite Study Collection. Thank you, Dave. The Elite Study Collection, which we're going to be sending to people uh, that are sowing $5,000 or more into this ministry, it's really what I believe are, are the best study tools for the believer available right now. We're going to send you three study Bibles and two books that fully teach what I'm teaching you today in more in depth. Two books and then three study Bibles. And I've put the, the it's very, I've been looking at it. It looks, it looks really, really beautiful. Um, I want one of these actually for my own house and I'm putting it out, but it's, it's that nice, but we're calling it the elite study collection. It'll be ready to ship uh, very soon, but 
We want to do that because we want people to have the tools. And of course, there's they were living in, there's so many things available on the internet and through apps and everything. But we're putting these together as a special package to give to those that are standing with us in partnership. For everybody that's sewing $1,000 or more, we're going to be sending you the uh, Genuine Leather Life Application Study Bible um, in the New Living Translation, one of the best resources that there are. And then, of course, in the month of April, we're giving you this book for those that are sewing $85 or more, which is Ever-Increasing Faith by Smith Wigglesworth. For any of these offers, just go to miracleword.com forward slash offer um, and uh, fill out the form. We'll get it to you. We'll get it to you very quickly. Um, I'm wondering if I'm missing anything else. I don't think that I am, but don't forget, there's all new Miracle Word Kids content coming out every week. New videos, new Bible studies, all of it can be seen at miraclewordkids.com. And so if you've missed any of those, but here's the cool thing. The one-stop shop for all of our content in one place is the Miracle Word app. And so if you have not downloaded and installed the new Miracle Word app, please grab it. I don't know if we have uh, a slide for that, but um, literally all the kids' content is there, all of the television broadcasts, all of these uh, podcasts, and you know, all the, just everything we put out for free. It's available to you guys inside the app in one place, along with Miracle Word Radio, all the stuff we've had, plus more, and uh, the whole facelift has been given. It's beautiful. And so grab it. It will bless you. Now, don't forget, tomorrow night starts West Virginia Camp Meeting, 7 o'clock, uh, right here at uh, Calvary Temple Assembly of God, Worthington, West Virginia. It's uh, just south of Fairmont, West Virginia. And then... Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday will be at 10.30 in the morning and 7 p.m. at night. Camp meeting. I'm telling you, you've got to get here. It's going to be very, very powerful. Um, for those of you that have not yet signed up to receive our magazine, you can get that um, if you'll go to miracleword.com forward slash live. I think even right on the homepage, you'll see a picture of the magazine. Uh, if you'd like to receive one, then go and sign up. You'll get it every quarter when it comes out. And now that we've found an end and around the post office, you'll get it much quicker. It's going to be great. Thank you so much uh, for hanging with me today. Love you very much. And um, don't forget, oh, look at that. Capri said driving down with the family tomorrow morning. I'm so glad to see people in the comments writing. We're going to be with you at camp meeting. We're going to be with you. We're driving in, driving down with the family. Can't wait to see every one of you. These are going to be very, very powerful meetings. Thanks for sewing. Thanks for hanging. I'll see you again very soon. Have a blessed day, and I'll talk to you later. Now that's the stuff leaders should be made of.